Yeah, and how many verses is over a thousand tongues? I mean, that's like 16, is it? Or? A, lot. a lot, yeah. He's my fact checker over here, keeps me. Let me read you a verse, and then we're going to launch into a, a biography. And the verse is from 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4. Paul writes, I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers uh, to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Father, we just want to open with our, a prayer asking you, Lord, to help us. Lord, help us to look back into history and to see men that you raised up to do a great, mighty work in the life of your church, to which we are the recipients, and we have received the blessing. Lord, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned earlier, today is Reformation Sunday, and... Uh, it's this Lord's Day that's closest to October 31st when we, we look back and remember uh, the, the beginning of the Reformation in Germany. Uh, October 31st will be 505 years since uh, Martin Luther took the, uh, his uh, 95 Thesis, that is his attack on Roman Catholic belief in selling indulgences and uh, he took that and he nailed it to, to the church door. And that was the practice of the day of selling indulgences. In other words, for money, you could spring forth out of purgatory and have less punishment. If the more you gave, the better off you were. And this was the spark that ignited the Reformation, uh, that, one, that one nailing of this uh, thesis to the door of the church in Wittenberg. This also happens to coincide with the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's translation of the Bible, or the New Testament, uh, in his day. Uh, and at Redeeming Grace Church, we identify ourselves as Reformed Baptists. And uh, some people ask, well, why, why do you put the word Reformed in there? It's because uh, we, we look back to our theological roots that were discovered, rediscovered back during the Reformation. And uh, these theological truths permeate what we believe, what we teach because it's the heart of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, the Middle Ages were dark ages. Uh, they were, it was a time where the church had just basically lost its light. It lost its gospel. It was nothing more than a faint flicker. Uh, the Church of Rome had turned away from the sufficiency of Scripture alone. The, the idea that's kind of a no-brainer for us, that we believe the Bible alone is the Word of God, was, was added to that. The, the fact is, church tradition... Church interpretation adds to the authority of the Word of God rather than the Word of God alone. The gospel bore no resemblance of the gospel that was preached by Jesus Christ or preached by the Apostle Paul during his life and ministry. The glory was, was, was not in, in, in God Himself, but the glory now was resting in the church. 
and the riches of the church were more important than the riches of the kingdom of God. So rather than the church being that bright, shiny pillar of truth as God had designed it to be, it became a murky pool of air. And that's where we find ourselves back at the beginning of the Reformation. So the Reformation was a glorious time in the history of the church of, of discovering again the truths that were in God's Word alone, and particularly the gospel of justification by faith. You know, if you want to sum up the reformational truths that were discovered back in those days, we, we sometimes label them the five solas. Sola Scriptura, the Bible alone, was rediscovered. Uh, one source of truth, the Word of God. Sola Fide, the, it's by faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ, not by any works or merit on our part. Sola Gratia, by grace alone. For sovereign grace of God whereby he, he gives out eternal life to all that he saves as a, as, as a free gift. Solus Christus, which is the Christ alone. He's our only mediator between God and man. And sola Dea Gloria, the glory of God alone. And so we're here as a church for our grand purpose and design is to bring glory to our Lord Jesus Christ alone. And many today are really unaware of the historical roots of the church. I mean, really, the church is historically ignorant when it comes to our past. I can't believe it, but I know many Christians think that somewhere in the last 50, 60 years, the church kind of just parachuted out of heaven and it's here, and and every church is the same, and and we all have hymnals and padded pews, and and their white colonial church buildings, and and, uh, and, and so there's always been a church just like the church here in Cody. Uh, But I'll tell you what, it hasn't always been that way. There's always been a church, true. But the church traces back historically through some very, very dark times. And we are the recipients of men and women who stood up strongly for the kingdom of God, lost their lives. Many were martyred for the very things that we take for granted today as believers in Christ. And so we want to just occasionally, once a year, we kind of go back and look at some of these these great forefathers of the Reformation, and we're the recipients of their zeal and blessing. I don't know if you realize that the church has gone through a bloodbath. You go back and read the history of the church, there's really a bloodbath of martyrs that stood up for truth, that were willing to die, some had their heads cut off. Some were burned at the stake, but they died for the very things that we just take for granted today as believers in Christ. If only we might get a better grip on our history, I believe we'd have a stronger understanding and how precious the faith is that we hold to and embrace. We never want to take it for granted. Uh, sadly, there's very little church history taught in the body of Christ today. I mean, I've I know that Mike blessed us a while back with, with an overview just to help us see contextually where we've come from uh, throughout history. Uh, the errors of today were the errors of yesterday. The heresies of today are just redressed up heresies of the past. And if you don't know church history, we're apt to repeat them again. So that I believe there's a need for us to stop periodically and to, to just take a look and look back and remember and give thanks 
for who we are, for what God has done through those who have gone before us. And I pray that as we look at one man today, that our hearts might be stirred up in such a way with greater boldness. I mean, one thing you can't argue, these men of the past were bold, zealous, and willing to die for their faith. Things that we're just willing to just, well, it's not a big deal. Well, it is a big deal. Truth is a big deal. On this Reformation Sunday, I want to take us back before Martin Luther, back to the 14th century. So we're 200 years before Martin Luther. Uh, some call this the dawn of the Reformation, you know, before, the, before the sun finally came up. And there's a man by the name of John Wycliffe. I don't know if you ever heard of his name before, but it's one you need to remember. Uh, John Wycliffe, who's been called the morning star of the Reformation. Now, how many of you know what a morning... I know, Dave, you know what a morning star is, right? I'm going to put you on the spot, okay? Is a morning star a star? Good, you pass. It's, it's what? It's planet Venus. So I learned that this week, but I said, I, I know Dave knows the answer to this. But it's a planet Venus. And, and Venus, what, comes up over the east right before the sun comes up. And it's, it's like the last thing you see before then the bright sun comes up in the east. And uh, so he's called the morning star of the Reformation. Before the bright shining star of Luther and Calvin and, and the great reformers, there was this little morning star in the east, shining kind of twinkling light, but nothing like the light that would come during the Reformation. I mean, Wycliffe was just that. You know, it's the last visible star planet that slowly fades away as the sun arises and as Luther came on the scene. We don't know much about the life of, of Wycliffe. Uh, there's no biography of his life, so we don't have all the, the details. Anything that we know about John Wycliffe really come from the writings that he, that he did during his life that survived, and we can kind of put two and two together and, and get a kind of a, an overview of this man called John Wycliffe. Uh, so many of his, to the demise really of, 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 the, of the Church of Rome, many of his writings have survived. Uh, Wycliffe was born uh, around 1328, that's a long ways back, in a little village called Wycliffe. <laughs> so isn't that interesting? My, my grandfather's name was uh, Wickwar, and he was born in a little town called Wickwar. So the same, that must have been a, the, the pattern of the day might have been named after the village that you, that you grew up in. But that was back in 1328, 200 years before the Reformation. And to be the morning star means that you were a little twinkling light. That's all he was back in those days. A little twinkling light of truth in the midst of much darkness. You know, it was the mom and the papas that sang the song, The darkest hours are just before the dawn. That's true spiritually. I mean, right before the sun comes up, that's, that's the darkest hour. And that's when this little light appeared by the name of John Wycliffe. There was a church back in those days. It had been called the Roman Catholic Church. It was the Roman Church, the Church of Rome. There were little sects here and there, but there was one main church. A hundred years before the Gutenberg Press. So there's no press at this time. There's no way you can run things off and, and reproduce them. There were no Bibles that were, that were in the churches that were common to the ordinary man. The only translation of the Bible in the 1300s would have been a Bible penned in, in Latin. 
It was in the possession of the priest and the priest alone. And many of the priests had no idea what was in the Bible itself. They really didn't understand the doctrines behind it. The church had turned its back on the sufficiency of Scripture. Traditions of men replaced the authority of the Word of God. The priests turned from preaching the Word of God to sacerdotalism, which was, was a, a belief that somehow man could stand between God and, and, and man and inter, intervene on, on man's behalf through the offering of sacrifices. Bells and smells replaced, thus saith the Lord. The Pope was elevated to the role of supreme authority of the day, not only in areas of religion, but in politics, and that spread throughout all of Europe. Uh, the gospel was all but lost. So we're in a day where there is a little... And we talk about the gospel. We all know what the gospel is, but think of living in a dark day where the church is massive and there's no gospel. There's no truth. The church's focus was on amassing wealth rather than reaching souls for Christ. They were act- actively building large religious cathedrals and edifices throughout Europe, financed on the back of the poor who gave to the church with a promise they would somehow spring forth out of purgatory. It's kind of the early health, wealth, prosperity gospel of the day. You give and you get, you get something from God. You know, a few, a few years ago, Mary and I toured the great cathedral in Cologne, Germany, and it was, the construction began in 12... 12- 48. It was way back. And it's amazing. It survived World War II. Stood there. Beautiful building. Uh, But even by today's standard, it was huge. Uh, It's about a football and a half field long and a football field wide. Uh, It was under construction for 600 years. And these buildings were going up not only in Germany... But the Duomo and Milan, St. Peter's and Rome, I mean, these, these cathedrals are going up all over Europe and then paid for by indulgences. That's where the funds came from. Now, indulgence is something, I don't know, it's foreign to most of us, but it was a very common practice during that day. It, uh, it, it, if someone came from the church and you gave to the church, they would write out a paper. And on the paper... It would allow you to, to be either less time in purgatory or have some spiritual benefit that might pass to you or one of your loved ones that's gone before you. Uh, you can understand how people would be quick to give if they would lower their, their time in purgatory. Uh, at the time of Luther, the Saxon monk by the name of John Tetzel went, went about Germany selling these indulge, indulgences all over the place for Rome. And his mantra that was quoted was, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. He even sold indulgences for insurance as an insurance plan in case you would sin in the future. And so you'd, be, you'd have some benefit if you intended to sin, that you could get, a, get an indulgence for the future. This was a dark hour in the history of the church. But things were about to change. You know, in his classic volume, The Life and Times of Martin Luther, the author relates a sad but amazing story. This is humorous, by the way, so be prepared to laugh. This is not going to be serious. 
a gentleman was agitated when Tetzel came to him and asked for money. It just made him upset that he would even do such a thing. So, so to test Tetzel, what he did, he says, well, let me ask you this. Well, if I put a gift, a gift in the coffer, uh, what if there was some sin I intend to do in the future right now? He says, well, will it include that? Will there be forgiveness for that? And also, will there be a blessing for that? And Tetzel said, absolutely. Go ahead, put it in the coffer. Let me, here's a quote out of the book. Most assuredly, replied Tetzel, I have received full power from the holiness for that purpose. After some haggling over the fee of 30 crowns was agreed upon, and the noblemen departed together with some friends, and they hid themselves in a nearby forest. Presently, as Tetzel journeyed by that way, the knight and his mischievous companions fell upon the papal salesman, gave him a light beating, and relieved him of his money. Apparently, taking no pains to disguise themselves, Tetzel was enraged by the foul deed and filed suit in the courts. When the nobleman appeared as a defendant, he produced the letter of exemption containing John Tetzel's personal signature uh, backing the authority of the Pope, which absolved the Saxon of any liability. So when Duke George, the judge before whom the action was brought, examined the documents, he was exasperated. Though he was, he ordered the accused to be released. So there's a little bit of humor that comes out of, out of the, uh, the indulgences of the day. The true path to life, the true path to forgiveness was no, no longer preached. And without the preacher of the Bible, uh, I think many just died. They were died lost because they never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. At the end of the 14th century, the church had no resemblance of the apostolic church we've been looking at in Scripture in, in Romans uh, 1 through 8. This is one of the darkest hours in the time of the church. Things were about to change. That tiny light was in the, on the eastern horizon. A tiny light by the name of, uh, of Whitfield could be seen, and that light would begin to shine. We know a little about Wycliffe's early years. Listen to this. This is for the young people here today. This is for the, for the young, young, all those of you under 20. We, uh, we know a little about Wycliffe's early years. Uh, we know that he entered Oxford University at the age of 15. And he studied philosophy and theology. Later came a doctor of divinity, leading scholars in England in philosophy and theology. At Oxford, Wycliffe taught, he preached, he wrote, he was a rector of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, I think you can learn, this is the young, young ones here, I, I think you can learn a little bit about life from this man, John Wycliffe. Uh, learn a little bit about Reformation truth from his life. You see, what God was doing during the time of, of, of Wycliffe, he was raising up strong men who could stand up against the institution of the day with the banner of truth. And, and so these are men that had to be educated. These are men that had to be trained. And these are men who were, who were trained in Greek and Latin and theology, the languages, Hebrew, political science, and they were able to stand up strong against the institution of the day. Men who could translate the Scriptures, who knew the Word of God, argue their positions, and do so with passion and persuasion. 
These were men of substance of that day, men like Wycliffe. Walden, uh, who was one of the bitter enemies of uh, Wycliffe, writing to the Pope Martin says this about him, that he was astonished at the most strong arguments with the places of authority which he had gathered with the vehemency and the voice and the force of his reason. So there, there's a man, you know, strong in his faith, began studying truth at the age of 15. But Calvin beat him. Calvin started his university training at the age of 14. And he finished the Institutes of Religion. I don't know if you've ever read through that. Uh, 544 pages. He finished that at the age of 27. It's, uh, it's recorded that this is the clearest, most logical, most readable exposition of Protestant doctrine that the Reformation age produced. And he wrote it at the age of 27. Now, going outside the Reformation, you can see the same pattern taking place in men like Spurgeon, the last Puritan who preached more than 600 sermons before he was 20 years old. You know, I went back on Sermon Audio and looked how many sermons I've preached in the last 30 years. And uh, I think it was about eight or 900. But I'm 76 years old. Think about Spurgeon, who before the age of uh, 20 had preached 600 sermons. And uh, he was self-taught in his theology. These men of old knew what it meant to be trained. They knew what it meant to grow up as men, that God would call them to ministry. They would stand up with authority and with passion and zeal. Uh, and I say this because what I, when I read the Reformation, I don't see the word teenager appear anywhere in the writings. In those days, there was no such thing as what we would call a teenager. There, was no, there wasn't a gap between 13 and 20 called teenagers. I mean, a teenager is nothing more than a big kid, right? You got little kids, then you become teenagers, and you're big kids. But you look at the life of the Reformers, you were a kid, and then you were a young adult. And that, that's how life was. And, and you took life seriously at a very early age. Today, many uh, young men are nothing more than big boys, even when they turn 26, 29, and 30 years old, living in their parents' basement and playing video games. Rather than grabbing an education and learning a trade and beginning to work hard at an early age, they're tied up being big kids. Part of the reason for this was the average man, of course, in those days lived in their 50s. So you look at Spurgeon, you look at Calvin, you look at Luther. You know, they're in their 50s when they all died. So if you had to do anything in life, you had to start early. Or life's going to be over with. You couldn't wait till you're 30 and die at the age of 50. But we can't use that, I don't think, as an excuse for being serious about the life that God has given us and being serious at an early age about how we're to glorify God. It shouldn't excuse us of wasting the young years. Too many professing Christians, young people, are wasting the best years of their life. Do you realize that? Uh, living off mom and dad and spending their time playing games. Many of the Christian young ladies are crying out. I hear this. This is true. I hear from Christian single young ladies saying, where are all the young men that I, I want to be married? And I look around and what I see is men, 
they're boys. And I'm ready to get married, to have a family, and I'm a, I'm a, young, I'm a young woman. And, and they're having a hard time finding serious-minded young men who are willing to work and, and see their, the blessing of providing for a family. Mary went to a, a, a wedding just a few weeks ago out in California. And uh, one of our relatives, what was the age of the, of the young man and the young lady? Yeah, he was 19 and she was 18. And I tell that story to people it was after Mary got back. What? We got a president of the United States that says, goes up and whispers in some young lady's ear and says, don't get married till you're 30. Have you ever saw that or not? But that's, that's where our mindset is in our culture today. But here, here was a serious-minded young man willing to take on a wife at the age of 19. And, and, and his wife was 17, right? 18, and get married, and have a job, and provide for her. And he understood what it meant to be a young man. And for that, I just, you know, it was, it was it's so contrary to our culture. When you tell that story, well, what, what's that all? What's the backstory? You know, something like that. Look to the Reformation and learn. Become men of faith. Not waste, but spend time uh, serving the Lord and growing in your knowledge of Him. Uh, be willing to live a life where you're going to burn out for the glory of God. So, a side note. Now we go back to John Whitcliffe. Uh, you know, I've labeled him a five-pointed morning star. You, know, you think of a star with five points. Because uh, when, when, when he points to the spiritual darkness with light, it comes from all five of those points. Five contributions and blessings to which we are the benefactors today. Remember, the Reformation hadn't begun yet. We're, we're, we're in the, the dawn of the Reformation. Uh, Wycliffe's only a precursor. He was kind of like a John the Baptist with Jesus. He, you know, he's the one that kind of began to push, push forth and, and make the way straight for the Reformers that would come. His theology wasn't perfect. We wouldn't call it perfect today. Uh, but he was growing, he was learning, he was teaching, he was preaching, he was challenging the thought of the day. And it's amazing that he was a light that was willing to stand alone, pretty much by himself. So uh, uh, the five points or the five contributions of Whitcliffe might be these. If you read all of his preaching and all of his teaching, I think the first thing would be the supremacy and the sufficiency of Scripture. He was strong on that. And that was needed in that day. By the grace of God, Wycliffe was one of the first Englishmen who discovered the sufficiency and the supremacy of the Bible alone as his authority for all faith and for all practice. Later, the Reformers would come along and, and label it Sola Scriptura, the Bible alone. He was brought to see the authority of the Christian life did not rest with uh, the church and the church's interpretation but it rested with God's Word. And Wycliffe, this is his own writing, he writes, All law, all philosophy, all logic, and all ethics are in the Holy Scripture. In the Holy Scripture is all truth. Now what sounds like such a no-brainer for us? Well, of course, we say, yeah, the Bible is the Word of God. It's, it's the source of all truth. Yes, but it wasn't a common truth in those days. He stood alone, raising the banner of sola scriptura. 
was radical because God's law must take precedence over the teaching of the church and the traditions of men. Now, when you start talking like that, expect things to happen. When you're willing to stand up for the Word of God alone and against the institution of the day that's speaking contrary to the Word of God, you're in trouble. And that's where Wycliffe found himself. Radical because God's law must take precedence over the teaching of the church and the traditions of men. Now today we affirm sola scriptura. Uh, We believe the Bible plus nothing is our authority as believers in Christ. We're careful not to bring back dark days of the church to our own day. Bible. But you know what? It's under challenge today. There's a plus sign. It's the Bible plus. The Bible plus adding on to the Word of God alone. And whether it's the Bible plus psychology, whether it's the Bible plus uh, uh, Wall Street business practices, the Bible plus uh, whatever the church teaches or whatever I feel, whatever I think. Uh, We have to be careful we don't fall back into the dark ages where it was the Bible. The Bible was not the authority. Once Wycliffe came along to the, with the conviction the Bible alone was his authority, you can see where the rest of his points began to fall naturally like dominoes into place. The second one, the second point of his theology was a transition of the Bible, I'm sorry, a translation of the Bible in the English language. Doesn't that seem like progressively to follow you? First, you believe the Bible alone is our authority. Well, that means we better do what? I better work on getting the Bible in the, in the language of the English people. And he began to do that by translation. Because the Bible is our supreme and sufficient authority, only natural then that the Bible should be put in a language where people can read it. Light would be brought from his own heart and his own life to all, all of his fellow Englishmen. Wycliffe began to translate the Bible into English. Now, he didn't do it out of Hebrew and out of the Greek original language, but what he did do is he translated from the Latin in, into the English language. And he used the, lang- the Latin Vulgate of the day. And you see, a, well, what an undertaking that would have been for a guy like, like Wycliffe to begin to translate the whole Bible into the English language. Uh, after it was translated in the middle, to Middle English, it took about a year to make copies. So he didn't go up to the photocopy machine, put it in, got a copy. Uh, what'd you do? Well, word by word, letter by letter, hand by handwritten, translate the Bible so you get a second copy and slowly do a third. It took one year to take one copy of the Bible by hand and reproduce it. So now we've got two copies. And he had help in doing it. He had a group of uh, monks that he called, that derogatorily were called lollards of the day. And, uh, and they, they were his, his scribes and would actually, trans, would actually take the word and, and put it into the English language. They would pen it. But after his death, in, uh, the writings of Wycliffe were discovered and, and were declared heretical by the Church of Rome. And the Church of Rome set out an, an edict to have all of his writings burned, destroyed, uh, but it's amazing there were 175 copies of the Bible that were preserved that have survived down until today. 
A hundred years later came the printing press. Of course, and after that, well, it wasn't quite like that. It was like, shh, like that. But still, it was a lot quicker than like that, right? So it's, uh, how did he print so many copies? How did he print 175 copies? By the way, it took a year to do one copy. And he did more than that. That's just how many were, survived. Well, the Lollards were, were, were some of his disciples, scribes, and they copied the Bibles. And, 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 and Lollard was, was a derogatory term. And it was used to really describe uh, the guys that were uh, the henchmen of, uh, of Whitcliffe. Where there's a Bible in hand, there is truth. Where there's a Bible in hand, there is life. Traditions and superstitions are slain, Whitcliffe wrote. So, so you're sitting here today. I mean, I have a Bible here and how many of you got a Bible with you? And if you don't have your Bible, you've got some kind of a cell phone. And which one of the million translations do you want to bring up on your cell phone and read it at a moment's notice? What a blessing we have today to have the Word of God. This is the Word of God that was given to us by men like Whitcliffe, who spent a whole year, not only just after it was translated, writing it out a copy at a time so that in the English language we might have the Word of God that unfortunately we take for granted. We take for granted. I don't know how many Bibles we have laying around the house and we're always looking, where's the Bible, you know? But it's somewhere, we've got so many copies. We're blessed. We're blessed because of men like this. Never take it for granted. Read it. Obey it. Delight in it. It's God's Word. And number three, we see the other point of light that came out from him was the primacy of preaching. Where there is a, a word in the language of the people, that word must be proclaimed. We're going to see that when we get to Romans 10. How are they going to hear unless there's what? A preacher. They must hear the word of God. They must hear the gospel. And so one of the things that uh, Woodcliffe did is he, he began preaching the word. These lollards, these, these little disciples of his, they went out into the countryside preaching the word of God. So Whitcliffe was one of the first Englishmen to revive the apostolic command to preach the Word of God. Well, I read from you to you Second uh, Timothy four two, preach the Word, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, and complete patience and teaching. So he not only translated the Bible, not only copied the Bible, he was preaching the Bible before the Reformation. And his itinerant preachers, these Lollards from, uh, sent out from Oxford into the countryside, uh, they, they were given by the, the opponents of Wycliffe the name Lollards, which is a Dutch term, which means mumblers, uh, babblers, and talkers of nonsense. So that's what they call these guys that were going out preaching the Word of God. And of course, these Lollards came under persecution. They're preaching truth. They're preaching the authority of the Word. In 1410, the first Lollard by the name of John Baby, I don't know why he's called that, but was burned at the stake for, uh, for sending out the preaching movement into the countryside. And so it had to go underground at that point. So let us never forget, nor forsake the Bible calling to preach the Word of God into, into our hearing for our own good. And, of course, we live in a time where, where preaching has become, uh, 
It's not in vogue today. There's people with itching ears. They want to have those ears scratch with something other than doctrinal teaching of the Word. And so we realize the price that was paid that we might have the preaching of God's Word. So let us affirm this, this Reformation Sunday, our commitment to expositional preaching and teaching of God's Word. J.C. Ryle in the 1800s wrote this, If men want to do good to the multitude, if they want to reach their hearts and consciences, they must walk in the steps of Whitcliffe, Latimer, Luther, Christostom, and St. Paul. They must attack them through the ears. They must blow the trumpet of the everlasting gospel loud and strong and must preach the word of God. And I think Ryle is absolutely right. The first, fourth point of light that came from him is uh, he boldly confronted the errors of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, this is where things get dangerous. When you begin to stand up against the religious authority of the day and use the Word of God as your source, you're going to have conflict. And so he had a commitment to the supremacy of Scripture, preached, taught the Word, and uh, the church had drifted way far away from its moorings of truth, and he's trying to bring it back. And I, I think you're aware of some of these tr- truths of the day that uh, were addressed during the Reformation. We're going to look at one during our, our Lord's Supper time, but one is, is transubstantiation. How many of you are familiar with that big, long word, transubstantiation? This was the teaching of the day, and it continues to be the teaching of the church today, that uh, the bread and the wine during the Lord's table literally becomes the body and the blood of Christ. A miracle takes place at the hands of the priest. A bell is rung, and when the bell is rung, that bread is literally, not figuratively or any other way, literally Jesus' body. And that cup is literally blood of Jesus Christ. And so what you have every time the Mass is observed and, and the Eucharist is, is, is observed, you have basically a, a, a reenactment, or you actually have a re-crucifixion of Christ at the altar. His body, His blood. Now, you say, well, we, that's kind of a no-brainer, isn't it? I mean, we read our Bibles, and we don't see that in Scripture. You know, we see verses like, this is, you know, eat this, this is my body, drink this, this is my, you know, this is my blood. Well, surely we know that Christ, He was standing there. He didn't literally mean that was His body and that was His blood. And so what the early Reformers did, and men like Whitcliffe, they stood up against transubstantiation. They said it's not biblical. This is not biblical. And, uh, <clears throat> and so what happened was they were persecuted. This is what he says regarding the Eucharist. Whitcliffe writes, The consecrated host which we see on the altar is neither Christ nor any part of him, but the efficacious sign of him. No pilgrim upon earth is able to see Christ in the consecrated host with the bodily eyes, but by faith. So we don't see Jesus in the bodily form. We see him by faith, by the emblems he's given us in this meal. Secondly is papal authority. He stood up strong against the authority of the Pope. He rejected the teaching that the Pope is the supreme pontiff of the church and the world, 
and the first to call the Pope the Antichrist. This is strong language. Now, if you, if you don't want to, if you want to be in trouble in those days, just stand up and call the Pope the Antichrist. Uh, the Pope, in Wycliffe's own words, was, quote, the Antichrist, the proud worldly priest of Rome, and the most cursed of clippers and past pursers. I don't know what a clipper or a purser is. I'll ask my, my fact-checking brother here later if he can tell me, but I know it must not be good. Second, thirdly is indulgences. He stood up against the indulgences. Church selling and granting reduction of time in purgatory or suffering in purgatory for money. He writes this, God alone grants indulgences and only to Him whom He first made worthy. And He rejected the veneration and the worship of the Virgin Mary. He rejected the power of the priest to hear and, and forgive sins and absolve sins of the people. I mean, he, he stood up against the church and the authority of the day in his doctrinal teaching. And, of course, for that, he, he would pay a price. One of the things that he did do, though, was such a blessing, is he recovered the true gospel. Almost lost. You know, sola fides, uh, faith alone, Christ alone. He, 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 he preached those, those truths. The gospel had been so mixed up with works, so mixed up with, with religious rigmarole that it lost the essence of grace. It lost the essence of trusting in Christ alone and His sufficiency for forgiveness of sin. You know, we often, sometimes we look at Martin Luther as the one who was the one who began to herald the uh, justification by faith, and that's true. But don't forget, 200 years before Martin Luther was Whitcliffe, who was preaching the same gospel message. He writes, Trust wholly in Christ. These are his words. Trust wholly in Christ. Rely altogether on his sufferings. Beware of seeing, seeking to be justified in any other way than by his righteousness. Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient for salvation. There must be atonement made for sin according to the righteousness of God. The person to make this atonement must be God. I mean, that's, those are strong. That's right out of Romans, isn't it? We've been through Romans. This, he read Romans and he understood the gospel. And this is, he preached this when a church had robbed the gospel of its sovereign free, free uh, grace. No longer was salvation a gift of God, but it was given to the church through the deeds of man. We're saved by Grace through faith alone. Uh, remember recently we've been preaching through Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. And we, we talked about the doctrine of predestination. Uh, and, and so in commenting on this passage of Scripture, he writes this. This predestination is the principal gift of God, most freely given, since no one can merit his own predestination, since it cannot be present without being present at the first moment of existence of the predestinate, it follows what it commonly said of grace, that this is the principal grace. It can never be lost, since it is the basis of glory and bliss, which equally cannot be lost. Therefore, such predestination is a divine decree rather than a personal choice of any man." That's strong. That's 200 years before Martin Luther. So what happens when 
when you stand up and your, your name is John Wycliffe and you stand up and preach the gospel and you stand up and address the errors of the church of the day and you translate the Bible into the vernacular of, of the average man and begin to make copies, have them broadcast and displayed out to, to many others to be able to read. What happens when the gospel is preached? You become the target. That's what happens. The church did all within its earthly power to eliminate Wycliffe uh, and the reformers that followed. Even if its message had never been burned, uh, one, of, one, at its, one at its stake. One of the early disciples uh, influenced by Wycliffe was a man by the name of John Huss, who was a Czech priest, charged with heresy and was refusing to recant of his heresy, the very same teachings that Whitcliffe teach, taught, and he was burned at the stake. And then you go and you follow this out through, through history, throughout the Reformation, and, and even into the latter time of the church history, Tyndale, burned at the stake. Ridley, Nicholas Ridley, burned at the stake. Hugh Latimer, burned at the stake. Thomas Cranmer, burned at the stake, and it goes on and on and on. Men who lost their lives, who had their heads lopped off, they were burned at the stake. Why? Because they stood up for reformational truth. And any truth we have today, any authority we have today, the Bible we have today, comes at the, at the very cost, the very blood of these men who, who laid down their lives for the gospel. You say, well, what about Whitcliffe? Did he, was he killed? Well, by the providence of God, he was kept from the fires of martyrdom. On December 28, 1388, at the age of 56, this is about how long he lived in those days, John Wycliffe suffered a stroke and passed in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ on the last day of December. But his enemies wouldn't stop with him, just let him go and die. The Council of Constance declared Wycliffe a heretic in 1415. And so nothing that the translation of Scripture into English, laity, uh, noting that the translation of the, of the Bible into English was a crime punishable by death. It was a decree that all his books be burned and his remains exhumed. Now this is how much they hated this guy. It's not bad enough that he just died, had a stroke, and that was it. You know, there goes Wycliffe. Glad, glad he's gone. Let's dig up his bones. Let's dig up his ashes. Let's really punish him. And so his bones were dug up in 1428 at the command of Pope Martin V. And they were burned, and the ashes were cast into the river swift. Here's a quote. They burned his bones to ashes. They cast them into the river swift, a neighboring brook running hard by. Thus the brook conveyed his ashes into the Avon, the Avon into the Svern, the Svern into the narrow seas, and then out into the main ocean. The, <laughs> the imagery here is, is basically, you can't stop a guy like this. His gospel is going to go out into the oceans to the whole world. You think you're putting away his, his, his ashes. It, uh, 
And so the ashes of Wycliffe are symbolic of his doctrine, which is now spread throughout the world and down to us today. For that, we're thankful. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we we do bow before you. We thank you, Lord, for uh, men who have gone before us that were bold, willing, Lord, to shed blood and to lay down their life for, for truth. Oh, Father, we're so quick to compromise. We're so quick not to read the authority that's been given us. Forgive us, Lord, of our sins. Lord, the young people that are here, Lord, would you stir their hearts to be the next generation of bold proclaimers of gospel truth. Oh, Lord, realizing all of us that time is short, the time that we have may we use for your glory. We praise you in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So let's stand and sing uh, to the Lord uh, as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table.